Hey, New Life family, welcome to the weekly podcast. We want to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. We hope this message encourages you and helps you in some way today move forward in your relationship with Christ and others. We pray God blesses you wherever you are today. Now enjoy the message. Thank you, Jesus. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. While you're finding that, I want to tell you a a testimony that I heard just like about a week or so ago. And it it will allude to the importance of prayer. Why why do we pray uh, for individuals? Why do we pray for circumstances? Why is it important? for us to be sensitive in our spirit so that we can hear the voice of God so that when we're out and about in our, on our daily life or just at home, that we can f- feel the presence of God and the nudging of the Holy Spirit to pray and intercede. And remember, intercession doesn't have to be this loud, passionate thing. It can just be this quiet, just whispering of the words and praying for whatever you feel the Holy Spirit is nudging you in or the situation or a particular person. But there was this missionary and he was standing up and he was, he was preaching. And as he was, as he was delivering the word and kind of wrapping the word up, a man stood up and was Basically, in short, I'm going to give you the short version of this. Basically, in short, he was apologizing to the missionary because he said a few days ago, because we didn't like what you were doing and we didn't like what you were preaching and you were preaching against stuff that we believed in because this guy obviously was not a Christian. And so because you were preaching against the gods we serve and how we operate, uh, we followed you, me and I got a group of boys together and group of men together and we followed you into the woods and our intent was we was going to rob you and then we was going to kill you and we was going to make make an example out of you that a Christian don't come into our territory and preach what you've been preaching and but he said when when we watched you and we we waited for the perfect time because we we had been following you and we knew that you was going to be passing through these woods to get to the other side so we waited for you and wait and when you walked in, we, we waited just like 30 seconds and we followed behind you. And our intent was to rob you and to kill you. But once we caught up to you, we were afraid and we become fearful because we seen 26 guards standing around you. And we knew that we could not rob you and we could not kill you. And we could not because it was only a few of us and a few of us could not come against 26 Regards and the missionary standing there. Now, mind you, he was just wrapped up his sermon. And so he's like, well, I accept your apology. I don't know what you're talking about because I've never had any security guards. I've never had any bodyguards. So I don't really know what you're referring to, but I accept your apology. So then a few months later, he was actually up in Michigan and he was recounting this experience and he was telling them what had happened and how this man had publicly apologized and what was going to happen and what was going to apologize. And while he's given that testimony of apparently how God had saved him, but he didn't know the rest of the story. As he's given this testimony in this little church up in Michigan, an old man stood to his feet and said, was it on such and such a day 
And the missionary said, I believe it was. I don't remember it, but according to this man's account, I believe that's when it was. He said, the Holy Ghost spoke to me on that day and said, get a group of people together and pray for the missionary because he's in desperate need of prayer. So the missionary, before he ever cracked open his Bible to preach because he was there to preach, he said, is that right? Is that who all prayed for me? And one by one, all 26 people whoo, stood and began to just give honor and grace to God. That's why prayer is so important. That's why intercession is so important. And it doesn't have to have a lot of times, especially, especially in our charismatic Pentecostal realm, we think we have to set the stage for prayer. We think we have to be in this mood with this worship music in this position. And certainly all those things are fine and okay. And, and it is okay to be in a routine of prayer, to go to a specific place. All of that is good for our disciplines and, and duties and things of that nature. But it doesn't have to look like that. You can be walking in a supermarket and, and walking in a Walmart. You can be driving in your car. I cannot tell you how many times I was driving in my car, just going from point A to point B. And I just sensed the Holy Ghost, and I just began to pray for whomever came to mind. That is intercession, and it is important when we feel the nudging of the Holy Spirit to pray because God then takes those prayers. He's through our prayers, he, he sends out ministering angels, and we even read about this in the first uh, chapter of Hebrews, how angels are meant for the ministering of people. You see it in the life of Jesus when Jesus was tempted and he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And once he ended that temptation, it says, and ministering angels came and ministered to him and fed him bread, fed, uh, fed his spirit and fed his body. And so that, that's all part of the spirit realm. And I don't want to get too deep in that because it can get, it can get pretty, uh, just very confusing to our minds because I don't understand always how it works. I just believe that it works, that through our intercession and our prayer. So make sure that your heart is staying sensitive to the Lord during the week and, and during those things so that you, through your intercession and just even your whispered prayer, can, can move heaven and earth on behalf of people. So look what it says. I, uh, I skipped probably two pages of notes, and I'm not even going to look at them. I'm not even going to review, y'all, because it's, I, get, I get caught up in the weeds of review, and so I don't want to even review. But look at Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 5. But before I start reading, I want to just quickly, and this is not back there on the slideshow, but I just want to show you that in the first verse, of Hebrews chapter two, it says this, and this is where this is where I have titled this about being anchored in Christ, lest we drift away. That in our times, in our economy, in our political realm that we're in, in our ecclesia realm that we're in, if we're not careful, um, we must we must be rooted in who Jesus is, both in who He is as a Savior as a Lord, as a King, in his humanity, in his deity. We have to know all, 
not that we have to hold the knowledge, but we have to pursue knowing him so that when things start happening in our world, we are anchored in something that's not of this world or else we will be shaken by this world. If your anchor is always in the things of this world, and that also includes jobs, that includes ministry, that includes family, that includes even family relationships. Even family relationships are a part of this world. If that is what anchors you, then anything that happens, you will be shaken. But when your anchor is in Christ, who is not of this world, but walked in this world so that you and I might follow in his path, then we are not shaken. And it doesn't matter what comes our way. We might feel the effects of it, and we might not like it, and our, and our minds might reel at times, and maybe even our feelings hurt and things of that nature because we are wholly human. But we don't anchor our belief system and, and who we are or even our identity in this world. We anchor it in who Christ is. And so the author of Hebrews says something very phenomenal in the very first chapter or very first verse of chapter two. It says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. What is he talking about? He's talking about it, it would, it is not, it will be plausible for a born-again believer to drift if their identity is not in what they heard about Jesus. Because you remember, the first chapter of Hebrews was all about the deity of Jesus. And that's the part that I'm not going to review. If, if, if you want to hear those, there's three sermons. Go back and listen to those. But so he starts off chapter 2 by saying, I just give you this whole teaching on the deity of Jesus. And he says this, he says, therefore, we must give a more earnest heed. In other words, we must pay attention to it. It must become a priority in our belief system. In other words, you have to believe who Christ is, his teachings and his doctrines, and what he did with his work on the cross more than you believe your own opinion, your own ideas, your own thought processes, your own emotions, your own feelings, all of those are always going to come to us, but we must give a greater heed to the fact that Jesus Christ is deity and everything of who he is, or what is the consequence? Lest you be drifted away. That's a powerful statement. You know what he's saying? You can't even trust your own emotions. You can't trust your own thoughts. That's why another writer says, I must align my thoughts up to his thoughts because his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And if I keep thinking my ways are right and true and my thoughts are right and true, I'm going to walk down here when God is trying to bring me up here, not so much in the physical, but in my thinking. And so if, if I'm thinking down here, then I'm always going to be depressed. I'm never going to have joy. I'm never going to have peace because in this world, there will always be trials, troubles, and tribulations. How many is experiencing some of those trials, troubles, and tribulations? Those are always going to be an effect of the physical world. But the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, we can't get past that. But if you anchor yourself in the knowledge of Jesus in your mind and in your thought processes, you can rise above that and you can do what Jesus did. You can walk above those trials. Your body will still be affected of it. Your emotions are still going to be affected of it. But your mind don't have to be stay conquered to it. 
I wish y'all would get on board with me today. What does that mean? What does that mean? And I, I didn't, I thought I would have a hard time preaching this, but this is quickly becoming my most favorite teaching because I, I see how the Lord through other scripture just kind of is putting the puzzle pieces together. Let me show you this. We're going to get to Hebrews 2. Turn with me to Acts. Let me show you this. This is incredible. Acts chapter 2. Did I say chapter 2? I meant to say chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. I didn't give this to them because this is just off the cuff here. Acts chapter 12 is where... Herod has just killed James, and now he's, he, he has beheaded James, and now he has put Peter into prison. And the first few uh, verses, it goes into detail telling you how Peter, Peter's not just in prison, but he's in shackles, he's in chains, and he's between two soldiers, and he has armed guards at all the doors. And, and you read, as you begin to read the account, you find out that he has to walk through three doors before he gets to complete total freedom. So you have three doors And each of those doors, there are armed guards at those doors. Then once you're in the inner part where of of the jail, of the prison where Peter is, he has two soldiers that are flanking him. Not only that, but he is in chains. His hands are in chains. His feet are in chains. He doesn't have, he doesn't have his coat on. He doesn't have his sandals on. And his garment is not girded up. In other words, he's, he's laying rest. And the scripture says that at night while Peter was sleeping, bound in chains between two guards at night, all these things. And he knew that the plan was that in the morning he was going to be taken before Herod and they were going to martyr him. They were going to kill him. They had just killed his friend, James. But because of a praying church, because of a praying church, God sends an angel down into the prison and the one thing that I want you to notice in this, in this account of what happens to Peter is, is this is what happens. I, I jotted some notes down here quickly. So an angel comes and tells him to rise up. And as he rises up, his chains begin to fall off of his hands. And as his chains are falling off his hands, it didn't disturb the soldiers. But Peter then went out and followed him out of the prison, and it didn't disturb the armed guards. So his chains fell off as he stood up. He put his shoes on. He put his coat on. He girded up his robe in order for for the journey. His chains fell off, and it didn't disturb the soldiers. He walks out, open doors, and it didn't disturb the guards until he gets to the place of complete freedom or until he's completely outside of the gate of the city. And the first thing he does with his deliverance, the first thing that he does with his answered prayer is he went and found a prayer meeting. We would be like, I need a Pepsi, I need a coffee, I need some pie, I want some McDonald's, give me a Starbucks, I need to go see my family. I need... We would have found everything else but a prayer meeting. But Peter, first of all, found a prayer meeting because when you truly get delivered, you want to go to the very presence of the one who delivered you. But that's not even the point I want to show you. Before the angel could deliver him from his situation, the angel had to deliver him in his situation. And in our American Christian economy, 
We are wanting God to deliver us out of situations while we are still bound. And that thought is good. But I'm telling you, you, if you are still bound and you get up from one situation and you go and you are outside of that situation, if the Lord doesn't deliver you right where you are first, then you'll just be in a new place with a new environment with the same chains on. Peter had to be delivered in his situation before he could be delivered out of his situation. And we in America have reversed that. We're like, oh, God, deliver me from my husband. My kids are driving me crazy. Oh, God, can you touch people at my job? The devil's on my job. Well, I guarantee if you talk to everybody in here, the devil's at their job too. The devil is everywhere. Everybody, (laughs) I almost said something. (laughs) Almost said everybody's husband is a devil. (laughs) I I actually, whoo, I caught that one. (laughs) I didn't mean it like that. But every single wife in here wants their husband fixed. Every single husband in here wants their wife fixed. Every single parent in here wants their children fixed. Every single parent, every single person in here wants different things in the ministry. But listen, we're always praying about the deliverance out of when God's saying, no, 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 Maya, I want to get the chains off you before I move you out. And until Peter learned how to follow the instructions of the angel, which was the word of the Lord, he said, rise up, put on your sandals, put on your coat, gird yourself. And when Peter obeyed the instructions while he still had chains on, it was only after obedience that as he rose up, the chains fell off. He then did everything that the angel told him to, and then he followed. And in his following, he got delivered out of the situation, but he got delivered in it first. So we need to get delivered in some situations first before we get delivered out of them. And the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is telling us that you're going to face some things. In this life, you're going you're gonna to face all kinds of trials, tribulations. You're going to face those things. But the key to overcoming is having your anchor in the anchor of Jesus, both his deity and his humanity. Part of that, I believe that the Lord has been showing me even over the last few weeks and even reminded me some things Part of that is when we're not in service that we are to have a praise on our lips. Part of that transformation of the mind is, is yes, it is the word of God because it's the word of God that transforms our mind. But coupled with that is the praise that comes off our lips. And I was even seeking the Lord for that. And, and I feel like like he took some knowledge that I had from previous things and he's just kind of bringing some newer revelation and almost this like epiphany type of thing. And as I was just sitting in my chair and just thinking about historically all of the things that, that in history people have went through, both in, in the Christian realm and just in historical realm. And I was like, God, there was people. Because I can remember specifically when I was a teenager asking my parents, what was it like when you was a kid? Because they would tell 
of stories because they were, they were young kids when the Great Depression hit. And so I remember uh, some of the stories that they and experiences that they would tell of things that they experienced and went through and, and things that they see their parents experience and go through during this very dark time in history when America people, the, just what I'll call the common people of America, didn't have money, and they, they were so poor, and they, they were just scraping and scrounging and just trying to get enough bread and mashed potatoes and things like that to feed their family. It was a very hard time. And yet, during that hard time, people had this joy about them. People had this victoriousness about them. And I was asking God, I was like, God, how can a whole generation, not just Christians, but a whole generation of people go through this shaking that happened in Wall Street and what we call the days of, of, the, of the Depression era? How did the believers get through that? He said, it's because what came off of their lips was praise. What they were going through, they didn't use as a song coming out of their lips. They sung about something greater than what they were currently experiencing. And when they sang about something greater than what they were currently experiencing, it lifted their mind and their spirit above what was they was experiencing. I was even asking the Lord. I was going further back. I was like, God, in the history, even of slavery, because I love to study certain things. I was like, you hear about uh, in this, this slavery era, all these believing Christians that they were slaves. They believed in the power of God. Yet because of man, they got incorporated into this slave uh arena to where they were beaten and they were they were just treated inhumane and yet when they would come together on that one day or those few hours when they were allotted a little bit of freedom they would come together and they would start to clap their hands and get a little beat in there and they would begin to sing old spiritual hymns it's like, God, how can they just be whipped and beaten? And because they love you in those few moments, how can they sing about something? He said, because they wasn't singing about what they were going through. They were singing about something greater than what they was experiencing right then. And so then I brought it down into 2023. And all of this was just me seeking the Lord and asking the Lord questions. I said, God, could it be? That in our era of worship, we are trying to worship based on our experience of where we are at and where our emotions are at based versus praising you and exalting you on who you are and what you've done. And therefore, that praise will lift us up even from what we are experiencing. Could it be? Y'all are quiet. Could it be that the enemy in the, in the worship arena has so manipulated even worship that as we come in to do a God-honoring thing of, God, I'm going to worship you, but because we don't first start with praise, we just come in and we worship and we, we're coming in and we're distracted and maybe we're heavy from the world and just all the things that we've experienced in that week. And, and we don't lift our spirit through our praise above that. 
and we just try to open up our hearts and we just try to worship and we're just like, oh God, I just, and we just have this little soaky period. And there's nothing really wrong, I guess, with soaky period, but I only want to soak when the presence of God is being manifested. I don't need to soak in what I've been feeling all week. I need to soak when the manifested presence of the Holy Ghost has infiltrated the system of of our atmosphere and he is here and you're just like, whoa, he is here now. Now just let me weep before you. Now just let the oil of your worship pour over me. But it takes praise before you get to that part. Y'all are kind of quiet in here today. And it's hard. It's hard to praise when you have been experiencing whatever it is. But that's how generations of Christians and believers won the victory and fought with the victory and made it through the other side of whatever era that they were facing is because they didn't sing about what they were going through. They sung about somebody greater than who was. And so I want to encourage you this week. When you start to feel overwhelmed, when you start to feel discouraged, when you start to feel like your mind is reeling, when you start to feel whatever it is that you are going to experience this week, just let a praise start coming off your lips. It might feel fake at first. It might feel like, oh, this is just, but as you begin to do it, I'm telling you, your praise exalts him in your situation. And then your situation may not change, but I guarantee you, your spirit and your heart will change. Peter was delivered in his situation at night with two soldiers before he ever got delivered out of it. Let's start allowing the Holy Spirit to deliver us in those situations, and then we'll start seeing breaking out of it. All right? Look what it says. Hebrews, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, for the sake of just it being very palatable to our mind, I'm going to read it from the NLT. And Tom, I'm, not, I'm prophesying now. I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to read it, five, 5 through the 18. And furthermore, it is not angels who control the future world we are talking about. So he's being very descriptive here. For in one place the scripture says, I love this, that he's always, this, the author's always referring to other scriptures. What are mere mortals that you should think about man, or the son of man that you should care about him? For yet, for, yet for a little while you, were, you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. He's speaking about Jesus here. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. What we do see, now he's clarifying, what we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position. So he, the author is telling you the big picture, and now he's clarifying what those scriptures mean in Psalms and Isaiah. For a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into the glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. 
So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. I love that. He's making them one. He's unifying Jesus and all the sons and daughters of God. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and his sisters. You know that you're not only the bride of Christ, but you are Jesus' brother or sister. That is a very close relationship. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters, and I will praise you among your assembled people. He he also said, I will put my trust in him, that is, I and the children God has given me. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who had lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Why do you root and ground and anchor yourself in Christ's deity and his humanity? Because as soon as you get to the age of being able to make choices and decisions and get old enough to have a conscience of right and wrong and good and evil, you will be tempted and you will be tested. But the author is saying, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear fear. You don't have to fear sin. You don't have to fear condemnation. You don't have to fear shame or guilt as long as you are a brother or sister in Christ, meaning through repentance of sin, you have come through the blood of Jesus. Jesus Christ, all of that shame, guilt, and fear is is taken care of at the cross. And he, through his suffering and his testing, is able to help because we will be tested. That is good news because we all know we will suffer some things. We all know we will be tempted in some areas. Do you understand this? And I believe this is where a lot of Christians get uh, uh, just... They don't have a correct doctrine in their thinking. The temptation of sin is not the sin. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted with sin. He was tempted with worshiping other things other than God. He was tempted with pride. He was tempted with uh, selfishness. He was tempted to gain all this stuff of the world without the plan of God in his life. He was tempted in all of those ways, but he did not sin. So temptation is not sin. The sin of temptation is yielding yourself to that and leaving the plan of God for your life and thinking that there is something better for your life than Jesus. The whole first chapter, remember we kept saying, Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is better than everything. If you'll keep that at the forefront of your mind, when temptation hits you, all you have to say is, this might be appealing to my eye. This might be appealing to my flesh. This might be the easy road out, but Jesus is better than everything. 
Jesus is better than, sometimes you got to talk to yourself. Sometimes you need to counsel yourself. Quit paying $100 an hour to go have somebody else counsel you. You counsel yourself from the word of God and say, Jesus is better than everything. We're going to run Lacey out of a career. Jesus is better than everything. Temptation hits. Nope. I want to do it. I'm leaning toward doing it. My flesh is going to desire to do it. But Jesus is better than everything. As soon as something comes to hit your mind of what you used to do, nope, Jesus is better than everything. So look at this. Hebrews shows us that Christianity is a heavily dense yet acceptable faith. So the Christian faith is the most well-explained faith ever in all of the religions If you start learning other religions, and I don't suggest that you do, because I have seen person after person after person with a good intention to learn about other people's faith, and in the process of learning about other people's faith has lost their own. So don't do that. But because I know just a smidgen about a lot of different faiths, what I have found out is they are complicated, and they don't make sense, and they're hard on your body. They're hard on your mind. You can't, you can't measure up to it. But yet when you start reading the Bible where we deem our, and Jesus, the life of Jesus, who is the author of our faith, the Christian faith is the most well-explained faith ever. And yet at the same time, it is so well explained and laid out by all the different authors through the unction of the Holy Spirit. There is still a mystery to it. There is still a mystery in that it is well explained, but you cannot understand it all. People have asked me before, how do you believe in the Trinity? The Trinity is not specifically listed in the Gospels or in the Bible. And, and how, how can you not just believe in Jesus only? And I said this, because the Bible is a pattern, and the pattern of the Bible shows explicitly and easily that there is a Trinity of the Godhead, but yet they are one God. They are three in one. I don't understand all of it. It's easy for me to believe it because I believe the Bible easily explains it. And yet in that, there is a shroud of mystery that my human mind will never be able to obtain how everything works in detail. Does that make sense? That's where faith comes in, that it's easily explained. I read it, and by his grace, I believe it, and by faith, I gear my life toward it. But I don't have God figured out. Does that make sense? Let me put it into some some, uh, language maybe that you and I might be able to grapple with. We in our beings do not have the memory or the hard drive to be able to ingest everything about God. One of the things that I've learned just by hanging around Tom, he has taught me a few things, that there are these little things called bytes, gigabytes, terabytes, and the weirder the word, the larger the memory. (laughs) That's my deduction of all the bytes in the... (laughs) 
as the word gets weirder and longer, then the hard drive of the computer is better, means it can hold more. If you use that kind of language about, about us, God has made us with his very DNA about us. His very DNA is implanted in us. And so that gives us the capability to be able to read about Christ, experience Christ, and understand him to a certain degree. But we don't have the hard drive in our being to hold everything about Christ and about the Godhead. Your computer at home, whatever you device, whatever you use, does not have the capacity to hold all the knowledge of the universe. But your computer at home does have accessibility to all of the knowledge of the universe through what we call internet or software. So it's not on your hardware in your computer. It's out there somewhere. But it's accessible to you at a time when you need it. Y'all understand this? And that's exactly how God works. When he made us, he made us so that we can be accessible to him. But our human bodies cannot have, we don't have the capacity to be able to hold all of the knowledge of who he is. That's why some of the stuff you just have to believe by faith. You've been given access to it, but you don't have the ability to hold it. And yet, at the same time, this is where your mind starts getting boggled in it. Because you read about accounts in the Old Testament when different people did things like touch the Ark of the Covenant and they became a burnt up dust. Like they tried to trespass the curtain of the Holy of Holies and they instantaneously died. How God came down on a mountain and people began to be fearful and they're like, we ain't going up into that because they understood there was a holiness and a sacredness about God. And if I even get a little bit close to him, I'm going to die. And yet, after the resurrection of Christ and as he ascends and he sends down the third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. It talks about in Isaiah and in Revelation, he, he, uh, you are able to see him in seven forms of pillars of fire around And he's called the seven spirits of fire in the throne room of God. And yet that part of the Trinity is in our spirit and we become his temple and we still are alive. I don't understand it. In the Old Testament, if they even got close to a box that God touched, they died. And yet I become the temple of the very spirit of God indwelling in me and we can become friends and he is my counselor and he is my guide and he's my leader and he is the one that reveals Jesus to me in every scripture And I'm still breathing. I don't understand how that works, but I believe in it. Are y'all following me? That's how amazing yet mysterious your God is. That he allows you access to know him, but he is so big that you will never fully know him. Please don't ever think you will fully know God. Because God will just give you a little peekaboo and your mind will be blown. I'm going to show you about some of them little peekaboos here in a minute. So the book of Hebrews here seeks for God's people to have this full body understanding of who Jesus Christ is. 
And the author wants us to be anchored in exactly who Jesus is, in the different aspects of who he is. He don't want us to be anchored in the myth of Jesus or in the Americana version of Jesus, but the fullness of who Jesus is. So the first chapter was all about Jesus's pre-incarnate or pre-existent stage in the flesh. And chapter two is all about who he is in his humanity and that he subjected himself and submitted himself and became even lower than the angels in order to have a purpose and a plan and, and live out that plan. I, I really mainly only have one. I'm going to give several points, but this is the main crux, Tom, of chapter two. Jesus's earthly life is a masterclass on humanity and spiritual growth. If you want a masterclass on living a holy life before God and you want to grow spiritually, you, you begin to study Jesus's earthly life. It literally is a masterclass for that. Yes, the epistles uh, begin to guide us in Christianity and ministerial things and other doctrines that, that, that is part of our Christian tentacles of faith. But it's when you're looking to grow your inner man, when you're looking to grow your spirit man and spiritual growth, Jesus's earthly life is the very crux of what it's grounded in. In the book of John, chapter 21, I love the book of John. It's probably one of my favorite books. I love to preach from it. I love reading out of it. But one of the craziest things, and I don't know if you all ever noticed this, but when it gets to the end of this chapter, like John has just explained the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in a way that none of the other gospels have. And he has just went into detail, and it's just incredible to read his version of it and his account of it. But then it's almost like, he gets to the bottom of this, what we call chapter 21, and it's like he just kind of runs out of words or almost like the Holy Spirit just kind of lifted off of him. And he ends, he, he kind of wraps this up in, in, a, in a verse and he says this, and there are so many other things that I, I, I felt, I think like John just through, through the heaviness of the Spirit just uh, reminding him and just the unction of everything that he's recalling because he's an elder now in the church. He's an old man as he's writing this. And I think it probably just physically wore him out. He's like, good gravy. I can't keep going on with this book. This is just my interpretation of it because my hand's cramping. I, my hand's cramping. I can't write no more. I can't do it. We're, we're going to tie this all in a nice neat bow. And here's what he says. And there's so many other things that Jesus did. I can't write about them all. And if we wrote about them all, I suppose that half of the, half of the world would be filled up with books and that we couldn't even contain it. And he just goes, amen, we're done. Like he literally just got through explaining in this incredible detail about how our birth of, of believers it's through the blood of Jesus and the dead. And he's just like, listen, y'all, my hand's cramping up. Jesus did so many other things, and I can't take the time to write them. Seek somebody else's book. Amen. We're done. <laughs> but he gives this little bit of information that Jesus did so much in his lifetime, and specifically in his three and a half years of ministry, that if every single thing was written about him, the books of the world could not contain it. 
That's the Jesus you serve. And yet we don't think he can handle our anxiety. We don't think he can handle our depression. And we don't think he can handle our family matters. And we don't think he can handle our financial matters. And we don't think he can handle our ministerial matters. And John is saying, if I wrote to you everything that he did, it would fill up all the books in the world could not even contain what he did. That's how powerful Jesus was while he was a human. Can you imagine now that he is in complete, resurrected, glorious form? He still has a body, but now he beat death, hell, and the grave. And now he is altogether lovely. That's why they were altogether beautiful, altogether perfect in every way. Jesus wasn't just rewarded. When, when he died on the cross, he wasn't just rewarded with the earth. That was part of his reward. But he was rewarded with the universe because he already learned that at, at, as firstborn that he had, we've learned this the last couple of weeks, that he was qualified to accept the inheritance of his father. Why was he qualified? Because he had the same DNA as his father. He had the same heart. He had the same purpose. Therefore, he was qualified to inherit not just Israel, but, but the entire world. And not just the entire world, but the entire universe. He sits on the throne of God, and it says the earth is his footstool. That means everything under the throne of God, he runs and rules and makes sure everything is under his voice of control. Look at verse in chapter 2. Look at verse 6 and six and 8. But one testified in a certain place, saying, the author is, is, is reminding us of a different scripture here. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. In other words, he, he commands the order of the universe. And he left nothing that is in put under him. But now we do not see, yet see all things put under him. So he's, he's quoting other scriptures of Psalms and Isaiah and different things. And, and he, is, he is now piecing together the part of his deity and he's bringing it down into his t humanity to give us a picture of how ultimately the person of Jesus and who we're really talking about. And to help you understand this, and I, and I briefly talked about this last week, is that if, if you understand how the spirit world works, there are good spirits and evil spirits that have jurisdiction over territories and have jurisdiction over cities and countries and communities and the like. And the Lord, because of the fallenness of the world and the sin still of the world, there are evil spirits that are in jurisdiction over certain countries and communities and neighbors. And even in the, the book of Daniel chapter 12, I believe it is, you can read that Michael, the Archangel is the is the reigning archangel over the spirit 
are over the country of Israel. So he is the archangel and he is the one that keeps Israel from being bombed. He is the one that when we pray to the father, the father sends word through, through Michael the archangel. Michael the archangel distributes ministering angels so that even when Russia is attacking, even when China is attacking, even when Iran is attacking and everybody is coming after this little plot of land, you have the most high archangel standing. Nope, you can't do it. It's not time to do it. They're this little bitty country and yes, they have air forces and they have all these things, but what is going on? The prayers of the saints are ascending before the Father and the Father is delegating to Michael the archangel and said, don't let nobody touch that land because they should have wiped Israel off the place, the, the planet. But because Michael, the archangel, is in jurisdiction of that. But get this, Jesus, when he became flesh, he came off of a throne. His name was the word of God. And he came and he so pulled himself in that he became a seed in the womb of Mary. And he willingly subjected himself to the creature that he used to give the authority to now has authority over him. Are y'all following me? It doesn't make sense into our mind, but you believe it. The only great thing about Michael is Mike, he had this thing where he knew his lane. I'm just calling Mike. (laughs) Mike knew his lane. He said, I seen this other dude over here Lucifer, he got out of his lane. I seen what happened to him. I ain't letting that happen to me. This, this Jesus down here, we used to call him the word. Now they're calling him Jesus. I don't understand all that. But this, this is Mike talking. I don't understand why they're calling him Jesus. That's the word. He didn't know him as Jesus yet. He only knew him as the word. He said, I still know him. He's the word. He's the one that sits at the right hand of the father. He's the son of the father. He's the word of the father. I don't know him yet as Jesus. And he don't look very powerful in that little bitty baby body. But I know him outside of that. And so I'm not going to get out of my lane. Because he understood jurisdiction and he understood who Jesus was outside of human flesh. And Jesus subjected himself to that authority. Let me also tell you, because I can see your mind, or you're, you're trying to grapple with that. Don't go there now. But there's, a, there's an account of a man named Naaman in, I believe it's 2 Kings 5. Somewhere right in there. Naaman is a Syrian soldier. He fights, not, he, he's not Jewish, he's not Israeli. He is outside of the Jewish community and he is a part of the Syrian army. He's a commander. He gets, a, what is it called? Leprosy. He gets leprosy. He's, he's trying all these things. He's trying all these rituals. And finally, a young girl says, you know, there's a prophet in Israel that hears from a God, and when he speaks what his God says, healings and miraculous things begin to happen. And so Naaman gathers all his stuff. He goes down. Elisha doesn't even come out. He says, go to the river. And we know the story. He dips seven times, and miraculously he is healed. 
And he tries to go to Elisha and give him some silver, some gold, and some garments. And Elisha says, nope, because what I have, you cannot buy. So you were obedient, so go on your way. And here's the amazing part of it. Naaman said, then sir, prophet, allow me to take two chariots of Israeli dirt. Your Bible said that. Do you know that it said that? It said, let me have two chariots of earth from your land that I might take it with me because he understood that there was jurisdiction in that land, that the land represented the presence of God. And he said, allow me to take two wagon loads of your dirt so that when I go back to my Syrian country and my uh, commander rests on my arm and uses my arm and I have to walk him in to the false god uh, uh, and, and the temple of his choosing, that my heart will only worship your God now. But I, there's some duties that I'm going to have to do. And as I hold my arm out and my master bows his head and bows his, his heart to another God, don't hold it against me because I'm just doing a duty to my officer. But I'm going to take some of the dirt of Israel and I'm going to bring it back to my home because I want the presence of God that's in Israel to be in my home. He understood jurisdiction. He understood. He didn't know about it. He didn't know uh, chemically how everything was uh, transpiring. He just understood there's something about this land that the presence of God. And so I'm going to take that dirt and it's going to represent the presence of God in my house. Oh, could we just get the presence of God back in our houses again? We don't have to take dirt into our house. You don't have to take a chair home. You're the temple of God. Let's just get the presence of the Lord back in our houses again. There's going to be things that we have to do throughout the week that is a part of this world system. But just like Naaman, you're telling God, God, I'm going to have to go to work. I'm going to have to be a part of the world system. I'm going to have to be a part of family systems. But don't hold it against me because, God, I want your presence. I want my heart to only be bowed to you. I want my eyes to only be fixed on you. That's what Naaman was saying in the Old Testament version of it. That's why he took dirt home. So there's this jurisdiction. That's why all over the country, when people get saved, especially in other countries, when evil is rampant and evil spirits are running rampant, that's why when they get saved and, and there's this moment that transforms their life, Whatever jurisdiction in the spirit that they're under, when they get saved, 1 Peter 2.9 says that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. What happens? They come out of that system and now they are transferred into a different kingdom and they are still in their country. They're still under that umbrella of that jurisdiction of those evil spirits, but now they have authority. Y'all hearing me? Now they have the righteousness of God and you don't ever grow in righteousness. And righteousness is imputed to you. It means it has been given to you by, the, by who God is. 
People always ask the question, how can I grow in righteousness? I'm like, you don't grow in righteousness. Righteousness has been given to you. You exchange righteousness. Isaiah says, my righteousness is as, say it with me, filthy rags. So I take my filthy rags off and I put on his righteousness. His righteousness cannot grow. It is what it is. You can't grow in more righteousness. But you know what they mean? But you can grow in holiness. So your righteousness does not grow, but your holiness does grow. And you grow in spirit and holiness, and you become more and more like God. Look what it says in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Here's the application. Jesus has all this power. And in all this power, because he is still deity and humanity when he was walking on this earth, he was willing to restrain himself. He was willing to hold back. In other words, he allowed himself to be put in a position that he knew he was more powerful than that position. That's the restraint of Jesus, being all deity and all humanity in one form called, called the body of Jesus Christ in his humanity. Get this, he allowed himself to be put in a position that he knew he was more powerful than, but he restricted his power in order to save you. He's all-powerful, all-authority. What is the application of, of all of chapter 2? It really can be boiled down to this one simple thought. In all of his glory, in all of his honor, in all of his power, in all of his authority, he subjected himself to become human form and yet kept his deity there are some theologians that try to say he emptied out his deity. Incorrect. He had all deity and he had all humanity in the body of who Jesus was. And he submitted himself to positions and places and people that he had the power over, yet he restrained his power so that he could die to save you. That's who Jesus is. He restricted his power in order to save us. And every once in a while, I'm wrapping it up with this right here. Every once in a while, Jesus, while he was here on earth, would give these humans that had the honor to walk with him in human flesh, he would give them a little peekaboo of who he was. And it would astonish them. And it would, it would frazzle their mind. They didn't even know how to articulate what they had saw or what they experienced. So he emptied himself. He was all deity. He was all humanity. Tom put this up. He emptied himself of the independent use of his attributes. In other words, his deity did not, did not drain out of him. He did not set his deity aside. He was all God and he was all flesh in one human body, but what he did was he emptied himself of the independent use of his power in order that he might understand how you and I feel. 
in multiple occasions, he said, did you not know that I could call legions and legions of angels to come down and take care of this situation? Peter, we've discussed this several weeks ago. Peter, when they're in the garden of Gethsemane and, and Judas has just come up and kissed Jesus, they, these crowds, these temple crowds and soldiers are coming with lanterns and clubs and swords and all these things, and they're coming after Jesus, and Jesus is about to give him a little peekaboo of who he is. And he's like, question him. He's like, how come you didn't arrest me in the temple? I was in the temple yesterday teaching. You didn't arrest me there. Why do you come at night? Like, Jesus is kind of giving him a little smoke, you know, because he, he knows he's about, he's about to fry him. He knows what he's about to do. And, and they didn't have an answer for it. They, and so Jesus says this. He says, who are you looking for? And before they could answer, Peter riles up in his flesh. Because he's like, I'm going to prove to Jesus that I'll fight to the death for him. Because flesh always riles up right when Jesus is about to do something incredible. Jesus knew what he was about to do. Jesus knew what he was about to show. But he was restraining himself from the attributes of his power because he knew he wanted to save his sons and his daughters. Jesus is about to do something incredible, and flesh stepped in right before Jesus was about to do something incredible. Peter grabs his sword, starts hacking away at this guy, cuts off his ear, and Jesus gives him a, even in this, gives him a little peekaboo of who he is. Because we think, and we've been shown in movies and in plays and all these other things, we think Jesus did this. And healed the man. But when you study scripture, he, that is not what he did. Peter comes up, he's whacking this guy, whacks either his entire ear off or part of his ear off, and it's laying there on the ground. And Jesus does this, shows him a little peekaboo of who he is, just does this, and miraculously creates another ear or a piece of an ear while the old ear is laying there bloody. That's why they were dumbfounded. That's why they didn't have an answer back. Jesus knew what he was going to do, and he's like, Peter, stop it. Did you not know? I don't need your flesh to fight. Did you not know that, that I could call legions of angels down here to take care of this situation for me? Have you, not, have you been with me so long that you don't understand that I have a whole host of armies that are standing at, at bay and all I have to do is speak one word and they'll come down and take care? But I am restraining myself from my deity to walk in humanity so that I can save you. And he shows them all, even the ones who came to kill him, he shows them a piece of who he is, creating a new ear by one touch while the old bloody ear is laying on the ground. And they were dumbfounded. And so Jesus had to prompt them and say, okay, now what was we talking about? Who are you seeking? And they're like, uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, through probably Aramaic words, 
audibleized this, ego amame. And if you're reading the book of John, it said, and they all fell down. Why did they fall down? Because he was giving them a little peekaboo of who he was. You just see a man. You just see a Jewish man that's talking about the Father. You just see somebody who's talking about God. But I'm letting you know I am God. And the very utterance of his name just went, and they all fell down. Another part of Scripture, if you're reading in the book of Mark about this same account, something very interesting right here. I'll close with this. Something... It's very interesting about this same account. Two different sets of scholars, and they'll fall in one or two camps. It says that when Jesus had those words and he showed them who he was, and they fell down, that the earth, or they, the scholars believe that the earth trembled at that very moment. There's this little innocuous scripture in Mark that is not in anybody else. Some scholars believe that, it, that John Mark was writing about himself because it says, and there was this young boy or young man that had this linen cloth, linen skirt just wrapped around him. And as he was running away, the soldiers tried to obtain him, stripped him of that linen skirt, and he ran off butt naked. Well, it doesn't say butt naked in the Bible, but it says ran off naked. He ran off naked, running for his life. Some of the camp scholars believe that's probably John Mark because he, he probably just threw that on and he was coming. And, I mean, if you believe that, you believe it. But if you begin to study how the wording is, there are some scholars that believe that while this happened, when Jesus said, I am who I am, that's what that said. And it, and it so shook the soldiers that they fell over. They couldn't even stand up. Talking about this mass slain in the spirit, that's what it was. It was a mass slain in the spirit. And when they hit the ground and when his voice rumbled out, because they were in a garden that's connected to the tombs, that the tombs shook when he said, I am God. And that one of those young men could have come out of that grave because he was wrapped in a linen cloth and had nothing under him. Y'all are quiet. And that when he went running away, they couldn't catch him. All they could catch was his linen clothing. Jesus was given those people a short glimpse of who he really was. It's the same Jesus, y'all, that we are to anchor ourselves in. And if he can do that when he was here and he was subjugated to his flesh and his body and his emotions. What is he like? That now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's no longer subjugated to his flesh and body and emotions. Now he holds all power and all authority. And we ended with that scripture that said, because he was tested and tried, he knows what it's like when you are tested and tried. And we are victorious because he is victorious. It doesn't mean that we're happy about when we go through things. But it means that we can still have joy when we go through things. And we can still have the peace of God when we go through things. 
The one thing that I love about who Jesus is, I'm, I'm passing all this other stuff up. The one thing that I love about who Jesus is, and the book of Hebrews is great about this, it says that he is our propitiation for our sin. What that means is it's the act of gaining favor or making things right with somebody. Tom, if you want to start uh, uh, some music back there. The book of Hebrews says that he is our reconciliation. He reconciles us unto God. And he's also our redemption. He redeemed us. He bought us back. But it also talks about this expiation. And expiation is this. It's, it's one of my favorite things about who Jesus is. Because when I studied this out, it liberated me. It brought a freedom to me. And that is what it means is it, it's a making amends or a making an atonement. Expiation means the removal of guilt. So what is guilt? Guilt and conviction often get confused. People often use them interchangeably, and they're not interchangeable at all. They're actually two very different things. Guilt is you bearing the responsibility of what you did and not being able to come out from under it. That's guilt. I have sinned or I have trespassed, and so now there's a guilt on me, and I'm not able to come out from underneath that guilt. I have to carry the weight of that guilt because of my trespasses or because of my sin. That's what guilt is. Conviction is God's commitment to you in letting you know that you've done something wrong, but not for the order in order to condemn you, but to draw you back into himself. So conviction, it could be said like this. Conviction is like an alarm system in your soul that is letting you know something is wrong. So you go to do something or you go and you did something and boom, all of a sudden in their soul, in your conscience, you start to sense a conviction. What that is, is that the, that's a spiritual alarm system to say that is not right, that is not holy and to grab your attention in order to draw you away from that and put you back where your eyes are looking back upon Jesus. That's conviction. That's, that's the mercies of God. Guilt is when you literally carry the weight of your trespasses and carry the weight and the shame of your guilt. But when you're carrying that, you can't get out from under it. That's what guilt is. That's where the enemy tries to keep you. But listen to this. The Hebrews says that he didn't just bear your sin. He also bore your guilt. In other words, you could say it like this. He, he didn't just bear your sin. He bore how you would feel about your sin and how you would feel responsible for your sin. So he didn't just take care of the sin problem. He actually took care of the guilt problem. And when people still walk under guilt and shame under the sin that they have already confessed tells me they don't understand a part of what Jesus did on the cross. And that is, yes, he shed his blood for my sin, but part of it is also he took on my guilt and my shame so that I don't have to walk under guilt and under shame. That is part of the puzzle of what happened at the cross and resurrection of Jesus. There's so much more in there about how Jesus actually 
grew in spiritual growth. The book of Luke tells us that after, in the second chapter at the end, it tells us that Jesus subjected himself or made himself subject to his parents. And as he did, he began to grow in wisdom and in spirit as he grew up. What does that mean? That means he went through the processes that human beings would have to go through so that he would know how you feel. Sanctification is a spiritual, is what, that's a fancy word for spiritual growth. And if you find yourself in a place where you're like, Sir Mika, I feel like I struggle with something. I feel like I struggle with this, that, or the other. Listen, we all are going to have struggles. And even when we overcome a certain struggle, there's always going to be a new struggle. There's always going to be something in our flesh that we struggle against. But we don't have to subject ourselves to that struggle. There is victory in it. There is victory. There is sanctification in it. What is sanctification? It's just a fancy word for spiritual growth that I am subjecting myself. Now we don't subject ourselves to the systems of this world the way Jesus did because Jesus defeated them. Now we subject ourselves to who the king is and his kingdom and his authority. And that's why we can pray, not my will be done, but thy be done. That's why we can pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done right here on this earth. We, we are not waiting to heaven. We are not waiting to get to heaven to experience all his glory. We can actually pull on his glory and bring it down to earth and experience it here on earth. You struggle with something, start getting into his word and start pulling on some of that glory. You know why we struggle oftentimes? Because at that moment of struggle, at that moment of temptation, we're not in our word. I'm not saying you haven't read your word. I'm saying at that very moment, the moment you sense that tendency to whatever be bent toward that temptation, whatever you feel to, to be, to fall into that same old category again, I guarantee you, grab your Bible. Say, nope, he freed me from this. Peter got delivered before he ever walked out of the prison. Start reading scriptures about deliverance. Start reading scriptures. Even at that very moment, instead of picking up this, pick up this. Instead of picking up a controller, pick up this. Instead of going and, and finding a friend or, or somebody, pick up this. You, you can't be bent towards sin when you're reading about who Jesus is. Go to chapter 1 of Hebrews and just start reading about who Jesus is. All of a sudden, whatever's pulling on your flesh, oh, that's not as good as Jesus. My flesh wants it. My flesh is bent towards it. There's a temptation there, but Jesus is better. And allow him to start flooding your mind and your soul. And I'm telling you, you'll start walking in victory. You'll start walking in victory. Stand with me. Stand with me.